Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Government Accountability Office recently upheld the protest of a contract award from the Defense Intelligence Agency. DIA was hiring a small business to conduct counterintelligence training. It used a slightly unconventional approach to evaluating bidders, but the Source Selection Authority made a basic mistake. We get details now from attorney Zach Prince, a partner at Haynes Boone. And Zach, tell us about this case. Sure. Thanks for having me, Tom. Secure Offense was protesting an award uh, by DIA to a company called Dark Star Intelligence. DIA was purchasing off the GSA schedule uh, using eBuy, which is honestly a pretty interesting way to be uh, procuring counterintelligence training. But uh, in any case, uh, the, the agency did this through a two-step process where first you submit your proposal and they would do the compliance check to determine if your quote actually satisfies the labor category mapping and security requirements. And then assuming you passed, they would ass- assess you based on technical approach and capability and price as two separate buckets. Price was a typical submitted uh, proposal submission. But for technical approach and capability, they wanted to do this only through oral presentations. And that's it. And they gave you in advance questions that you needed to address, you know, general categories, and then three specific scenarios. But there was no technical submission beyond this oral presentation you did. Right. So training and is kind of hard to show what you would do technically, I guess, unless it's presentations or something or simulations. And as far as the price was concerned, that was simply labor hours, right? Yeah, that's right. They were planning to make determinations of certain confidences based on your oral presentation, and then they would assess your price and make a best value trade-off. And one of the presentations you had to make as a bidder was what would happen if 25% of the staff quit and you were down staffing by to the 75% level, how you would continue to carry out the training. Yeah, that was one of the specific questions they directed offerers to discuss was uh, any mitigation strategies to reduce the risk, the negative impact of the training if you drop below the 75% level. And that's an important point because that was sort of the heart of the prevailing grounds, at least of this protest. A secure fence had argued that the agency irrationally uh, assessed it a lower confidence level uh, because it hadn't in its oral presentation addressed its mitigation strategy. GAO disagreed with that. They said, actually, you didn't address any mitigation approach for dropping below 75%. But there was disparate treatment. That is, they treated Darkstar and Secure Offense in a different fashion because Darkstar, the awardee, also failed to address this point. So it was rational for the agency to ding Secure Offense. They should have done the same to Darkstar, and that mattered a lot to uh, GAO's analysis. Right, because this was a sustainment, which only happens in, what, about 15 or 20 percent of the protests that are brought. Yeah, that's right. It's not very frequent. And it was an interesting sustain, too, because there are quite a few footnotes. You always see in the GAO decisions, these footnotes that say, you know, we, we actually did see all of your arguments. And we, to the extent we don't talk about them here, it's because they're meritless and we're dismissing them or whatever it is. Here there are a couple of footnotes where they say, you know, either this could have been a ground for sustain, essentially, but we're, we're not ruling on this, but agency, we're sustaining anyway, so really think about this. Or, you know, the agency didn't deal with this at all in the protest. So again, since we're making the agency go do it again, think about addressing these points and try to make this better next time. Interesting. So it almost says that when you protest, submit a variety of grounds, hoping that one will stick. 
That is absolutely always the GAO strategy that you throw everything at the wall. And you know, frankly, you very rarely win on the initial grounds you go in on because you're doing it blind. You don't get the record until after you submit your protest. And then you have to try to find something there that's the basis for sustain, particularly at GAO. At, at the court, it's, I think, a little bit more targeted. We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince, a partner at Haynes Boone. And we should also point out that the dark horse initially winning bidder was slightly higher priced than secure offense. Not a whole lot more, but half a million dollars or so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was about 2% of the overall price, so it wasn't a huge deal, but they were higher priced. And yeah, price was of less value or importance to the agency than technical approach and capability, but it mattered enough that GAO found prejudice uh, in the event that the agency had not made these errors that it could have gone to secure offense. Right. So it must have had some other reason for liking Dark Star Intelligence, and therefore it sort of skipped over, the agency that is, skipped over the idea of looking at the mitigation strategy for a staffing shortfall differently in the two vendors. Yeah. And they had other reasons. The agency had other reasons that they uh, gave Darkstar some higher confidence. But GAO also found that those were problematic, or at least one was, that the retention of incumbent personnel that was addressed in both oral presentations, Darkstar got credit. GAO noted that SecureFence didn't, which is, again, disparate treatment. Yeah. So the lesson then would be for the agency to do what the next time? The agency has got to be very careful that it's evaluating proposals in an even-handed way, strictly based on requirements, only things that are actually written there, not things the agency had meant to say or thought it was implied, but what it actually says is your evaluation criteria. And make sure that when they're assigning a risk to one entity for something that is present in the other proposal, that they're also assigning a risk to that other entity. Another issue that got a little bit screwed up, I think, on the agency's part was they had a technical evaluation finding of a lower competence due to a factor that was not ultimately in the source selection decision. But GAO thought that that mattered enough. It was clearly a problem. That is, it was disparate treatment, and it could have influenced the decision, even though the source selection decision said didn't. So I think the agency's just got to be very careful in how it documents why it's making its decisions. Right. So the lessons are then if you have something that you are evaluating people in a critical manner on, make sure that you look at them exactly equally and don't introduce something to favor one or disfavor one that you don't apply to everybody. Kind of basic. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and the contractor side, you know, it's the same lesson. The contractor should always be taking from these types of decisions. Read the requirements very carefully. Make sure you're actually responding to the agency's requirements. And if you have questions, ask them in advance because that's the time to do it. Don't make assumptions that you know what the agency means. It's shocking to me how few people uh, can read critically. <laughs> uh, maybe it shouldn't be at this point, but you know, if you have questions, you think it means this, maybe get a second pair of eyes on it. Make sure that that's correct. Well, in oral presentations like this, is there that type of back and forth permitted? And can you say in an oral presentation, well, what did you precisely mean by this? But then, of course, you've already made your bid. Second question is, is it possible to amend your offer after you get clarification in an oral presentation? It really depends on how the agency structures it. I mean, I would think that that comes in the Q&A, right? And that's before you go to your oral presentation, because effectively that is the bid submission. 
uh, the agency doesn't have to let you change your bid. And I don't get the impression here that the agency was going to let anybody change their bid. You've made your presentation. Right? There's no written submission you're resubmitting. So what's the purpose of oral then, I wonder? I'm not sure. I think it was that the agency wanted a chance to probe the offerers and, and see sort of live, here's the scenario, here's some questions, how are you going to deal with this? And they felt they'd get a better sense for the real life experience that they were likely to have doing it that way. Which is pretty darn subjective when you think about it. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. But a lot of the process, you know, we try to say that there's objectivity in a lot of these procurements, but of course it comes down to people. And people are making decisions and agencies are stacked with human beings who need to deal with the contractors, you know, in reality for the next year or five. Sure. And now this protest has been upheld, which means the award can't go forward. Yeah. I, I mean, unless the agency decides to uh, override the SECA stay, which is not going to happen. Realistically, the agency is going to go back and reevaluate the proposals and make sure they're consistent with RFQ and with uh, GAO's recommendation here. And they do have ways of getting what they really want agencies. <laughs> yeah, they do. I, I wouldn't be shocked if it goes back to Dark Star anyway. That happens in a lot of cases. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to 
enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program. 
that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So 
one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's. Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.